0: So I had to think, what was I going to do now? And I essentially just applied for every single job on LinkedIn that I could find. Kept on getting lots of sales BDR positions back, thought it was really interesting, thought I would hate it, but thought that area would be helpful and sort of through more interviewing realized marketing was gonna be a great fit.
1: Welcome to Hidden in Plain Sight. The Enterprise Revenue Intelligence Podcast for revenue leaders in yes, sales, marketing, and customer success. Because we all share the same goal, revenue growth, always more, always faster. We learn how to drive revenue as we examine real life insights from multiple angles with human flavor since people buy from people. I am your host, Mariana Kogan, CMO and winner of the Forrester Marketing Program of the Year, and I will be joined by Art Harding, Season Revenue Leader. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today to talk about how to build a pipeline engine. We know it's a team sport between marketing, sales, and customer success, so let's get the ball rolling and these con- actionable insights from our guest. Today, we're having Ali Jowen. She's a Vice President of Global Marketing at RepTrack. Welcome to the show. Hi,
0: Marina. It's so nice to be here.
1: This is going to be a lot of fun. I've known Ali for a long, long time. So this is going to be an awesome conversation. So tell us about your journey in marketing and what does RepTrack do so that the audience can understand a little bit better where your comments are going to be coming from.
0: Absolutely. Well, I consider myself a bit of an accidental marketer. Because previously I was doing a PhD in ancient Greek philosophy until I realized that was actually probably the worst career move I could possibly make. And I like to joke that all I have to show for it is these books behind me. That's it. And I ended up getting a job in marketing because I realized that my analytics skills would actually do very, very well there. And if you learn anything in grad school whatsoever, it's how to write copy pretty quickly. So it seemed like a good match and just absolutely loved marketing and how there was this combination between analytics, data, as well as the option for creativity. And I ended up leading global marketing at RepTrack in July 2020. So, you know, really smooth, stable time to be leading a marketing team or department for the first time. We're a 200-person company globally We uh, sell to the Fortune 500. And what we really do is uh, track corporate reputation or basically what people think about your company. So we like to say that you get to choose your brand. You can choose your font. You can choose your colors. You can choose your taglines. But your reputation is... What do people think about your brand promises? Are you living up to your brand promises? So, you know, for example, ESG is such a hot topic right now. We don't measure how you're doing on ESG, but we will measure how people think you're doing on ESG. So it's a super, super interesting time to be in there. There's so much data that we get. So I've got my marketing data. I've got my data science data. It's a whole data fun time.
1: That is awesome. Let's just stay a little bit longer on that initial comment that you made that you actually started in a very different place. And then you made the transition. And you got a super successful career. So, how is it that you did it? I mean, you mentioned that you had the data and you know how to write copy, but how is it that you took that jump? Or how is it that happened? Because we all tend to think that careers are like a straight lines. You finish high school, you go to study marketing. And then you have a career in marketing. Tell us a little bit more about it.
0: So, I was, I had started my grad school career with a master's and a PhD because I graduated college during the recession. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do anyway, which was fine because there weren't that many jobs anyway. So, hiding in grad school seemed like a good plan, but things started getting better. And there, not that there were ever a plethora of philosophy professor jobs, but there were even less with a budget cut. So, I had to think, what was I going to do now? And I essentially just applied for every single job on LinkedIn that I could find, kept on getting lots of sales BDR positions back, thought it was really interesting, thought I would hate it, but thought that area would be helpful and sort of through more interviewing realized marketing was going to be a great fit. But I think what helped me succeed in marketing was that in philosophy, they bash your ego till it doesn't exist your professor will say the meanest things to you. And even before that, growing up, I was a professional ballet dancer, where like a nice comment might be like, your foot looks like a dead fish. So I think just going into my career being like, hey, I don't know marketing, but I'm willing to learn and getting feedback and just really not being afraid to say, I don't know something, but I'm going to try it or sure, I haven't done this, but let's learn. And then asking, Hey, how is this? And just really not being afraid to fail. Of course, it's not fun. But my sort of mantra was no one's ever going to be meaner than they already have been. And what's my CEO going to do? Call me fat? Like when when you grow up with all of this, it just meant like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to try it. We'll see how it works. And I always like to test things small. So if it doesn't work, it's not the end of the world. But just really not being afraid to raise my hand saying, I don't know, but I'll try it and let's see what happens. And just not having that fear, I think, let me take opportunities that I remember my parents would say, do you have any experience doing that? I was like, no, but hey, if I could learn ancient Greek, I bet I can figure this one out. So like, why not? Let's try it. And just sort of having that attitude of not being afraid to one, say you don't know,
1: and then two, just to try it and see what happens. I love it. So it's all about the attitude. Then you mentioned corporate reputation. That is such an important component in the times that we're living through where it's what the brand, as you say, not what you say that you're going to be doing, but what people really see that you're doing. And I'm starting to see that, you know, as I'm looking to hire people in the old days, it would have been that you open a rack, and then people join the company. By now, you have to have that reputation. Like people go and read on my LinkedIn, and then they decide if they want to work with me, yes or no, because what is the reputation that I have in the uh, in the space? And and that's even more important for companies with social responsibility and diversity and so many components. How are things going? How's everything performing? Is growing? How are you working with sales to make sure that you guys continue growing? Tell me more a it.
0: Also well, so we are so lucky that in many ways, a big part of our product is data. And we have a great data science team that is always giving us really relevant data. One thing that we just published on our blog was Q3 insights globally of how people felt about inflation and ESG, I don't think it was a shock that every generation was concerned about inflation. But when we really started digging down into ESG and the environmental, we were seeing that especially Gen Z, what they cared about companies was being less wasteful, or at least, yeah, not being wasteful. And that's just not something I would have assumed. And we've seen that generations feel things so differently. But the way we've really harnessed that at RepTrack is that we come from academic backgrounds. We were the reputation institute and we prided ourselves on being market research, the smartest people in the room. And basically the more complicated we made things sound, the more we thought people would wanna work with us. And when I came in, I was looking at our metrics and it became clear that nobody wanted to spend time with us because one, no one really likes the smartest person in the room. And two, it's not as if people had the longest attention spans before COVID. But now that we're in COVID, B2B buyers don't owe us anything. They don't have to read our boring white paper. They can be on TikTok. They can be stock trading. They can be texting. They could be doing literally anything else. And so our big theme for the past year has been becoming a brand that people want to actually spend time with. And we've called our marketing strategy the uh, strawberry smoothie approach. I did not come up with this; my head of content and creative did, as you can tell. But she, the way she describes it, as it's like when you've gone to the gym and you want to treat yourself, so you don't want to go get like an ice cream sundae because you just did all of that work to get healthy. But a strawberry smoothie—it's tasty, it's healthy, it has that protein. Whereas, you know, no one wants green juice, no one wants celery juice. And so to make sure that all of our content is truly educational, it has to provide value, but it also has to be equal entertainment. And that has been basically how we've done every campaign. We did one this summer called The Ultimate ESG Guide. And the tagline was, it's not just for hippies anymore. And it was all 70s, flowered power, Austin Powers themed, and it was just so much fun. But it got people to read it because as they saw this hippie in a business suit on the cover, they knew it wasn't going to be a boring time.
1: So last time that I saw you, we for the listeners, actually, Ali is based in Boston. So uh, we met recently at a dinner. You mentioned that your content creation process brings the BDRs into the conversation. And I find it to be fascinating because sometimes, as you say, content and companies can get a little bit. I don't even know how to call it, but we like complexity and we like thinking that our products are phenomenal and we lose or it's a little bit hard to be customer centric and BDRs at the end of the day, they're the ones who talk the most with our customers and prospects. Tell the audience about how we see that, that you have that content engine, because I thought it was a spectacular idea. Well, I say,
0: first of all, I have a very unfair advantage that I'm married to a salesperson. So I know exactly what he thinks about the content that his team is putting out, when he's going to use it, when he's not going to use it. But more importantly, when he's actually going to read it, and that's almost never. So the first part is really working closely with the sales team in what do they care about? What are they going to work with? And what are their prospects talking about? So I invest a lot of my time with the sales team I'm in the weekly BDR meeting every week. I'm in the weekly new logo team every week and the weekly account management. So that's about three hours of my time every week. But it means one, they have that comfort level with me. They know that if I'm there, I'm in it with them. I get to hear firsthand what they're talking about, what their prospects are talking about and making sure that it's relevant that way. And that we're really not creating something that marketing just thinks is a good idea, but that we'll use our intent data, we'll we'll use other sources of data. But before we really start on anything, we talk about it with the sales reps and sales leadership, because if they say it's gonna be a dud, we're not even going to bother. So we don't even start working on a campaign unless there is some type of buy-in that, yep, I can use this, this is going to be interesting. We stay very close with them during the content process. But what we do with the BDRs is I think perhaps the most innovative and been the most helpful is that a week before a campaign goes live, we send them the full report. Our CEO hasn't seen it, other higher ups, like it goes to the BDRs first to read it. And then they tell us what they think they need from it. Usually, and I mean, I will be fair, they we've never gotten comments like, yeah, we don't like it. it, it we do have a good relationship with them but it it will more often be, hey, this section was great. Could you make that a one pager? Because I don't think my early stage prospects are gonna care about this whole report, but this one section as a one page, it's gonna be a gold mine. Or another idea that they had was for social posting for on LinkedIn, could we take all of the graphics in the report, just make them as images, put them in a box file so that they could use those cool images in their linkedin posting. So now whenever we sort of have a campaign, there'll be this menu, but we show it to them and say, "Okay, what's missing? What else do you need?" And our only rule is is we will build anything for you as long as you'll use it. If you don't use it, you're going to lose this privilege, but that really hasn't been an issue because we've done it and they've used it and we've seen great results.
1: That is great to hear because isn't it like 60% of the content goes really unused? It's creative, we get excited about it, but it doesn't really make it into the hands of almost anybody.
0: Well, I think one of the things is that we forget that we're not in the job of Netflix, and yet again, we kind of are. We people aren't going to read something that's not entertaining. And I remember when I was put in charge of all of marketing and suddenly content was my responsibility. And we had this kind of boring brand at the time, and all the content was so boring. I didn't know how it was going to even be possible to make this interesting, but I was interviewing and this is the one time in my career I only interviewed one person, but I interviewed her and I remember thinking, if she can't make this interesting, nobody can make this interesting. And it's even people not going to name names, but very senior, senior people in my company who have never read anything, when I send them emails, it's three bullet points, they will read a 38-page report and they will write what they thought was funny about it. So we really lean into this notion that, yes, we're going to be educating you, but you're going to have a fun time because if it's not fun, no one's going to do it.
1: Exactly, exactly. Especially now, as you said, with Netflix that we're used to having really engaging content, like, We're not Netflix, but then we really need to produce engaging content. So as we move into talking a little bit more pipeline, so you got this content. You're in a space that it's really important. What is working for you these days to create pipeline?
0: So I will say we absolutely have a content engine. And we've really we've kind of our code is we have one big report followed by the one pager, followed by the video, the infographic and the quick slides. As long as we keep that with relevant data, we can keep the lights running. But what we found has been really important is really good segmentation and LinkedIn ads and getting the right content in front of the right people on LinkedIn, because we're not a well-known brand. We're obviously working on that, but budgets are tight right now. We're private equity owned. There is no budget for big trade shows or whatnot. So it's really making sure we create the right content, but spend our dollars wisely in front of getting it out in front of the right people. And we're lucky. We sell to comms and marketers and they live on LinkedIn. So in some ways, our strategy has been very simple. Create amazing content, segment it well. I mean, we happen to use Sixth Sense, but there are other tools out there. And you use those segments to make sure that the people who are interested, let's say in ESG, are seeing your ESG content on LinkedIn, but then also using orchestration so that they're also seeing our ESG ads on Google ads. And then if they're on Facebook, they're seeing those same ESG ads. So it's sort of like this amplification theme that we can't boil the ocean. We have to pick very specific accounts that we're going for, but we're going to pick them. We're going to pick them carefully, find out what they care about, have the right content, and then just surround them so it seems like we're massive because we just happen to be everywhere they are.
1: Love it. And then you're creating all these attention, traction. How do you ensure the follow-up with the sell side? Because sometimes... There's always this, or there used to be this idea that, well, what marketing creating, is it good quality? Are they really segmenting correctly? So are they going to be passing of things that leads that nobody cares about? How do you make sure that you have that alignment so there's continuation on the work that you do?
0: I think the biggest thing that I did when I first came to RepTrack was ditch the MQL model and we're now solely measured on pipeline. And the reason why that changed everything for us is that marketing can't create pipeline. We can't do that on our own. We need sales to do that. So it's not as if marketing can say, oh, look, we generated all these MQLs, all these downloads, our job is done. Our job isn't done. Just because we got the lead, okay, great, the right account. We now need to help sales get leads from the other people in that account. Okay, have they booked the meeting? No, what do we need to help them get that meeting? How do we make sure that they're ready for the demo? And since we're on the hook for everything until that opportunity is created, and we are also on the hook for afterwards, but it puts us in the pilot seat together and we can't do it without them, they can't do it about us. So I think what we've done really well at RepTrack is we see each other as on the same side. And again, I can't go back to spending at least three hours a week with the sales team They know me, they see me, they feel comfortable to give me their comments. But more than anything, it's that shared metric that we can't be successful if they're not successful. And I always, always remind them that marketing wants you all to make lots and lots of money. We don't care, like what we want, our success is you being rich. So even if you might think this is a little wacky, here are the metrics why, but here, we're doing this because we truly think it's going to build pipelines, we get our bonuses, and that you hit your goals, and then we're all going to go on CEO Circle and have a great time. And just saying to that to them over and over and over again.
1: So it's making sure that you're really aligned almost from the emotional level all the way to the actual measurement. So that it's one team, because as, as you mentioned quite rightly, We cannot sell anything without sales, but sales cannot sell anything without marketing. We just did some research internally at People AI, and uh, looking at my buyer's journey, I had to have a certain number of touches before an account is ready for a demo, because accounts can be not, it's not just about pushing the get a demo, get a demo, but you need to warm them up. And then after that happens and you get that opportunity creation, there's still a lot of contact that has to happen. In order to really get that full buying circle involved, so you get those 10, 20 people that sometimes need to be involved in a decision to say yes. so And that's a big challenge.
0: It's so hard. And I found, especially in the past couple of months that we now have, so we had always sort of known that our buying center, we needed three sort of main roles, the end user, sort of the business champion, and the person to sign the paycheck. But now we have what I'm calling the uh, four horsemen of the sales apocalypse, which is procurement leading the way, uh, looking for their pound of flesh in every single deal, IT, legal, and then the one person who's worked with a competitor before. And they were always sort of there, but in the past six months, really beginning to understand that we need our own video just for procurement. We need a video just for IT because we are losing way too much time. And it doesn't need to be these big expensive things. We use something called PowToon. I think it's $200 a month. And my content team made this cute little video for procurement, which which does save time. But yeah, I'd be curious if other people have found that in this economic uncertainty, suddenly the additional buyers are coming out of the woodwork.
1: I think by now we all are seeing procurement and the CFO. Oh, yes. Being really decision makers. I actually, I just did some work there because the CFO by now is a main buying persona. And it's somebody that in the past we would have had us, yes, has to sign off, but now it's really almost one of the main, main buyers. You were talking about video, and I know you mentioned Netflix before, but as you're talking about video, how do you make sure that the video is going to connect? You mentioned that you have this content engine that you start with almost like the long form you go into the one pager, you go into the blogs, and it's almost only then when you get into video that you kind of know what's going to connect.
0: So usually for us, it'll be highlighted around what's actually going to be most interesting for our prospects and what's not going to be most interesting to us. This is a slight tangent, but my product marketing team has been redoing our pricing and packaging, which everyone knows is the biggest night. No, not the biggest, it's just I guess my biggest nightmare at the moment, it's a miserable experience. And one thing that I've constantly been reminding them is that if people internally love it, we will have failed because our pricing and packaging isn't for us, it is for our prospects. And we need to think of it with that lens on, it needs to make sense to them. So let's ignore the internal peanut gallery. And that's exactly how we look at our video content. What do we see is trending in terms of intent terms? What can we sort of see from Hotjar on our website people are most interested in? And we lead with that. And I'm very lucky. I'm a very, very supportive CEO who really lets us lead the way with that. But it's also having to stand firm where it's like, yes, I know internally we have all of these opinions. But look at our data. Look at which blog posts have had the most traffic, the most conversions. These are clearly the points that everyone's interested in. So this is what you're doing and complain all you want, but I can promise you in a month, I'm going to have metrics and you can eat your words then.
1: <laughs> I love that teacher. Tell me mistakes. Oh my goodness. do you see that? Tell of one, like a big one. <laughs> yeah, this
0: is pretty public and I still, this should have worked so well. Uh, but last year we were doing, because we always do research on our customers. But one thing we were starting to really understand is that we sell to comms, And they're not really used to metrics. And this notion of measuring your reputation can seem like punishment. Or as we were sort of realizing, no one went into comms to deal with math. And so we had this idea for a series called Metrics and Martinis. And what we were going to do was going to be a four-part series And the notion was, listen, we get it. Math is scary, but we're going to hold your hand. And because it's a little scary, we're going to send you a martini kit because everything's a bit less scary with a martini. And each week, the theme of the webinar was tied to the martini itself. We thought this was going to be a huge blockbuster. No, everyone just signed up for the martini kits and didn't show up for the webinar. Very (laughs) soon. That was embarrassing, it was not great, but also because we do tend to pilot things at a small level, it means that we shouldn't have to spend too much money before we realize that it goes wrong. But yeah, sometimes you just have ideas that should work and they just don't. But what I've tried to educate my company with is sort of borrowing from DevOps methodology, which is like, listen, we're not gonna hit it out of the park all of the time. We are absolutely going to make mistakes, But this is why we start small and we test. And the only time it's a true failure is if we haven't learned anything from it. As long as we've learned from it. And we can also just say, hey, here's why we thought it was going to work out. As long as like that argument can be justified, then the rest is, hey, things happen. And this is what we've learned for next time. Yeah, we'll only send out the fancy swag after they've attended the webinar.
1: So then you're doing experiments but in a control environment so that you know what you're expecting. And if it's not behaving that way, you can course correct because you're measuring. This is great. Let me just summarize some of the amazing lessons that we got through this conversation with you, Ali. First of all, everybody, attitude. Don't be afraid to try new things. Do them in a small experiments. Make sure that you know what you're expecting but have the attitude and confidence to try new things. Number two, build an amazing content engine. But make sure that you're writing, creating content, that it's really engaging and that it's really customer first, not something that you're reading because you're getting paid to read it. And then number three, pipeline. It is a shared metric. So the more that you can be in alignment with marketing and sales, the more that you can deliver. This has been awesome. Ali, thank you so much for joining us and look forward to continuing the, our conversations. And thank you very much to all our listeners for tuning in with us today. Thank you. This was wonderful. Hidden in Planned Sight, the Enterprise Revenue Intelligence Podcast is brought to you by I. Make sure to search for Hidden Plan Site in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. Be sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at AI, thanks a lot for listening.